0: This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. If you could keep that passage open in front of you, that would be a marvellous thing. We're looking at 1 Corinthians. We've been going through that series over the last year or so with some breaks in between. Uh, And we've come back now to uh, 1 Corinthians and we looked at chapter 11. And um, now we've looked at, uh, now we come to chapter 12. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we seek to understand him. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us, be a speaking God in this text this morning, that you would speak into our lives and give us the strength by your spirit to apply what you are saying to us. And in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I want to begin by asking you quite a personal question. And so the question, are you a spiritual person? Are you spiritual? I don't know what kind of images come to mind when you think of a spiritual person. I don't know, uh, these days it's quite a fashionable thing to say I'm a deeply spiritual person. Often you mean that you are spiritual but not religious, that it's certainly uh, not connected to a formal religious experience that means that you are spiritual. It's one of those vague words, isn't it, the word spiritual. But I'm excited to share this passage with you today because it's a part of the Bible that has really strengthened my faith. When I was younger, I used to not think I was spiritual. I grew up in a Christian home and I knew the gospel and I'd been taught the Bible and I'd gone to church, but... I imagined that there were two tiers of Christians. There was the sort of ordinary garden variety boring Christian, that was me, and then there were sort of spiritual Christians who were sort of a higher plane of Christian. And I imagined that these spiritual people who spoke about the Holy Spirit had spectacular supernatural experiences all the time. They saw miracles with their own eyes. They had a sort of holy and otherworldly quality about them. They looked as if they were the living embodiment of some of the stained-glass windows, complete with that dinner plate thing that happens behind the heads of the people in stained-glass windows. I'd read the stories of the superheroes of the faith, missionaries like the Wesleys, and I'd feel like a spiritual second-class citizen. I knew what my inner life was like. I knew that I was a sinner, and I also didn't get some kind of warm inner glow that told me that the spirit of God was in me. I couldn't name a particular emotional set of emotions that went with being spiritual. And so I assumed that that was what having the spirit must feel like. So was I a spiritual person or not? Well, Paul is going to clear this up for, a little, for us a little bit in this passage. Because he's got a very clear definition for us of what being a truly spiritual person is. And it's often not what we think about. It's often not how we would think of being a spiritual person. Now, how are we going to plunge into what he's got to say first? Well, as always, we've got to remember who he's talking to. You remember the Corinthian church in that cosmopolitan city, very much like Sydney, a port city with people coming and going from many different countries, speaking very many different languages and bringing with them many different religions. And these people in Corinth were impressed with spirituality and with power. And they were impressed by the latest guru who had rolled into town and impressed them with Claims of miracles or profound wisdom. They would follow whoever the latest guru, the latest fashionable guru was. And this had infected and impacted the church as well. And it led to fights and factions amongst the Christians in the little church in Corinth. So whose leader was most spiritual? Who was the most spiritual person? What group was the most spiritual group in the church? And these former pagan worshippers, well, they had a picture in their minds of what true spirituality must look like. They'd seen it in their town. They could see spirituality being expressed all over the town of Corinth, in the temples and the shrines of the city. They could see people engaged in ecstatic and fervent and noisy and chaotic worship of the many gods that were there, falling down before the idols that were everywhere in that town. So, if that's what spirituality looks like, shouldn't Christian spirituality look a little bit more like that? I mean, shouldn't it be more evidently spiritual as we know it? Well, that's how Paul starts in verse 1 of our passage, chapter 12, uh, verse 1. He says here, now about spiritual." Gifts, says our English translation, I'll talk about that in a minute. About spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Actually, the Greek doesn't say the word gifts here. It just says spirituals. Now, about spirituals or about spiritual things or spiritual persons. And quite clearly, the people in Corinth wanted some advice about what true spirituality looked like. Who is the most spiritual? How do we know who a spiritual person is? And how do we understand the evidence of the spirit working in people's lives? That's important for us to get because this passage is not about spiritual gifts as much as about being truly spiritual and the things of the spirit of God. How does the spirit of God work? And Paul doesn't want his readers us as well, to be ignorant about spiritual things, so we'd better listen in. It's a bit of an underline for us. Now, about those spirits, I don't want you to be uninformed. And so that's what he does when he sets it up in verses 2 and 3, contrasting pagan worship with Christian worship. If I look at what it says there, they had once cavorted in front of dumb idols that were silent, And that's the remarkable thing about, or the obvious thing I should say, about idols, if you bow down in front of them. They do not speak. They cannot. They're made of stone and wood. They have no revelation to offer whatsoever. They'd had had purported spiritual experiences elsewhere. Now they turn to the God of Jesus Christ. And so how would you recognise a difference? Would there be a difference in the spiritual experiences that they had? Well, Paul has got a simple test. Dumb idols inspire in their followers meaningless babble. Dumb idols don't produce anything intelligible. But the true God speaks. The true God is a speaking God. He's a God who's interested in communication. He speaks through people and he causes people to say a particular thing. He causes people to say, Jesus is Lord. And that's what he says in verse 3. The Spirit of God won't ever inspire someone to curse the name of Jesus. It's quite clear. You'd never get someone saying, Jesus' name be accursed, and have them be truly, a truly spiritual person. They cannot have the Spirit of God in them if they say that. And vice versa, if you, on the other hand, if you say, Jesus is Lord, then quite clearly... The Holy Spirit is speaking in you. Now, of course, anyone can say the words Jesus is Lord with their mouth. We could teach a parrot to say Jesus is Lord. He doesn't mean that it operates as a kind of magic spell or a mantra in some way. In fact, in Romans where he uses the same formula, Jesus is Lord, he connects it to our hearts and he says, if you confess this with your lips and believe in your hearts, then that's what saying Jesus is Lord means. That's what it's about. So how do you know that you have the spirit of the holy God, God's holy fire living in you? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord, that he is risen and that he rules, that he rules not just over you but over the whole world? that he rules, not just over the whole world, but over you and your life, then the spirit of God is in you. You are a spiritual person. And you don't just have any spirit. You have the spirit of the true and living God. You, you, in your ordinariness and with your doubts and your sins and your weariness, not looking anything like one of the stained glass windows here, no offence, you are more spiritual than the most learned guru. You are as spiritual as the most prayerful monk in all Christendom because the spirit of God works in you. If you stood shoulder to shoulder with everyone here, just a few minutes ago, and declared that Jesus is Lord, and you meant it, then you did that by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit was working in you. And in addition to that, by his Spirit, God is making himself known in you. What does that look like? What does that look like? How can we tell? Well, what Paul wants to tell us here is that it looks like lots of things. It looks like ordinary things, very mundane things, but it also looks like extraordinary things, supernatural things. It looks like small things. It looks like large things. It looks like loud things, and it looks like quiet things. In the members of the church, the Spirit of God is at work activating them, getting them to do stuff. But he works in very many different ways. Here's how he puts it in this little sentence in verses four through to six. He says, there's many varieties of, it's got three parts to it, notice. There are many varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are many varieties of services or ministries, might be a better way to translate that, but the same Lord, Jesus. And there are varieties of activities or actions, but it's the same God who activates all of them in everyone. What's he trying to say here? The same God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is at work in each believer. All of them, in everyone, he says. There are gifts, there are different kinds of capacities and abilities. There are different kinds of service. There are different roles and ministries in the community. And there are different kinds of things that happen, different sorts of activities, which is a bit of a bland word, but it just means different sort of things go on. And yet, here's the point, they're not evidence of different spirits. They're the result of the action of one spirit. The same God works in all of them, no matter what they are. And so what are these gifts or ministries or actions? Paul calls them manifestations, which is a bit of a, again, not a great English word, revelations, evidences, evidences of the Spirit's work. Well, he's got a bit of a list for us in verses 8 through 11, and he mentions here utterances of wisdom, utterances of knowledge, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, faith, gifts of healing, the working of miracles, Prophecy, discernment of spirits, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. There's a couple of things to say about this list. First of all, it's not an exhaustive or an exclusive list. Paul's got other lists of gifts elsewhere that are different, other lists of these revelations of the spirits of God, the things the spirit does in the church, and they're different. They've got different things on them and they're put in different orders. So we shouldn't be worried. You shouldn't be worried if you look at this list and you don't identify with one of the manifestations of the spirit here. It's not like you turn up to the wedding and your name card's not on the table. You may have had that feeling when you read that list. We could add to his list perhaps uh, flower arranging, administration, pastoral care, prayerfulness, teaching, hospitality, cooking, welcoming, IT, graphics, music, children's ministry, accounting, and I was reminded after the service at 8 o'clock, quilting and gardening, and on and on. When these are evident in church to teach us that Jesus is Lord and used for the common good, all of these are manifestations of the Holy Spirit. It's not what they are so much as what they do that makes them distinct. So it's not an exhaustive or exclusive list. Secondly, although rivers of ink have been written on what these different things mean and look like and how to get them, we don't really know what he means by exactly each of the items on the list what's the difference between utterances of wisdom and utterances of knowledge well I don't have any idea I mean we can guess but he doesn't tell us he doesn't define them we don't see them anywhere else in the New Testament so what can it mean he mentions faith and I can have a bit of a guess here all Christians are supposed to have faith that that seems an odd thing then to say there's a special gift of faith but perhaps you do you do actually meet christians who have exceptional faith and it's an encouragement to others so is that the gift of faith possibly he uses the word miracles here or the english does which just means deeds of power we don't know if it's supernatural deeds or ordinary deeds but it could be either Prophecy, he mentions. Prophecy is uh, again a word that uh, causes lots of uh, lots of debate. What does it actually mean? We know about the prophets of the Old Testament. Is it to do with forecasting the future? Well, not always. Biblical prophecy is chiefly about speaking the word of God, uh, speaking the word of God into a particular moment, and it's a work of the Spirit in the church. It's a verbal thing, and it involves it involves God speaking through someone. It may involve knowing the future; it may not. And then we come to the last uh, two items on the list, which involve tongues. Well, there's been a lot of controversy and confusion about what Paul might mean here, especially since the rise of the Pentecostal movement in the early 20th century. There have even been those churches who've claimed that speaking in tongues is the sign that you're truly Christian or that it's the sign that you've moved on to a higher stage of Christianity. And I've got to say, given what Paul says here... Both of those readings of what tongues might mean are completely false. However, what does he mean? Well, the word tongues just means languages. So does Paul mean speaking languages? Now, I'm related to someone who seems to be able to speak four or five languages, and uh, I'm very impressed by that. And surely in a multicultural town like Sydney or Corinth, that ability could be really useful in a church setting. But Paul seems to be talking about something else, something that seems more supernatural, the supernatural occurrence that we now call speaking in tongues. And that's where people speak in either an earthly language they do not know or in a heavenly language. And I think we can say that because in 1 Corinthians 13, you might remember that famous wedding passage, which we'll be looking at in a couple of weeks. He says there, if I speak in the tongues of men or of, do you remember? Angels. And have not love, and he goes on to say that really loves the key here. The talking about speaking in the tongues of angels seems to refer to the tongue speaking that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 and then in uh, the chapter in chapter 14 as well. Now speaking, what does this mean? What could this be? Well, this practice of speaking in supposedly heavenly languages, uh, heavenly languages or languages you don't understand yourself, was practiced in pagan worship in the ancient world, and then took its place in Christian worship too. We really do have very little information from the Bible about it, so it's worth saying that. Sometimes we we suppose that there's more information out there than there is. Some Christians I know do practise speaking in tongues and find it very personally very helpful. I've personally never done this myself. But as we'll see in the next few chapters... Paul has strong reservations about tongue speaking in the church because the God of the Holy Spirit is the God who speaks to be understood. And that's going to be his key theme going forward, that the evidence, this tongue speaking ability, which may be very good for an individual, does it actually serve the church? In what capacity could it indeed serve the church is the question he's going to ask for each of these manifestations of the Spirit. What is it? How does it help the one body of Christian believers? Paul's point is some people will experience it and some people won't. The experience of the Spirit's work in us will take many forms. The Spirit will show Himself in one person in one way and differently in another. One person, though, is not more spiritual than another. That one is supernatural. That one has a more public ministry or service or expression of their gift does not make that greater than the others. The key thing is that in the church, all these things come from the one spirit. There are many varieties of gift, he says, but the one spirit. And in verse 7, he puts that key phrase in, for the common good. For this reason he will later on say there are some gifts that are greater than others because he'll say it's the one that the ones that communicate that actually serve the common good better than the ones that don't these are the manifestations that build up the manifestations of the spirit that build up the church So what makes these revelations these evidences of the spirit visibly spiritual are two things First of all They point to Jesus as Lord. And secondly, that they work for the common good of the community of God's people. It matters less, as I said before, what they are and more what they are for. They are for building up God's people. They serve to keep the body functioning. They belong to one another and depend on one another. They are not about us fulfilling ourselves, They are not an expression of our authentic selves. They are certainly not about others thinking we are more spiritual than others. And so that means a few things for us here at St Mark's. The first one is to say this. We are spiritual people. You are a spiritual person in a spiritual community if you declare that Jesus is Lord and you gather with others who do the same. The Holy Spirit puts us on our feet each week and causes us to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And we together try to live into that truth. And that means if you are a member of this community, the Holy Spirit of God is living in you. You are a spiritual person filled with the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and that now makes you holy. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, in the people of God. If that's something you've realized, if that's something you'd like to affirm or confirm, then joining the Reaffirmation Sunday class might be for you. That's on June the 9th. You might like to join me in standing here, and either getting confirmed if you've been baptized, getting baptized if you haven't been baptized, or reaffirming your faith if that's something you'd like to do. All you're saying is I believe that Jesus is Lord. That's all that's all that that means. But that means, by the way, that the others who gather here with you and make the same confession with you week by week, they have the spirit of God too. Now it might it might look different in someone else. It mightn't look as holy as you think holiness ought to look. It mightn't look as precious, as quaint, as stained glassy as you expect. But as we'll see next week, you can't com- you can't declare independence from them. We all depend on one another and belong to one another. And so actually your job is not to ask, how does the Spirit reveal himself in me so much, but... How is the Spirit showing himself in my brother and sister? How can I recognize the work of God's Holy Spirit in the person who sits next to me? Each of these has been given to you so that you can see the lordship of Jesus more clearly. So can you see it in them? Perhaps you are looking, as we so often do for the spectacular, and missing the ordinary. Perhaps you're missing the work of the Spirit of God in those those acts of kindness that bond us together, in that meal that's been made for someone, in that visit to the hospital, in that small text message, in that prayer for someone. Perhaps you've seen a more outgoing and charismatic person and thought that's where the Spirit of God must, must rest and yet missed the fact that the Spirit of God is working in unexpected and different ways in us here at St Mark's. And so lastly... This passage isn't so much of a kind of spiritual talent quest or job interview or careers advice. It rather says, what is my ministry here amongst my brothers and sisters? How is the spirit being active in me in whatever way for the common good? How am I serving with who I am In whatever ordinary or extraordinary way, to build up the community of the Spirit? How am I living out the unity, the oneness of the Spirit here? How am I helping us all to see the truth and live the truth that Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Messiah, is Lord? Amen. Thanks for listening.